Elwolf has been marketing marketing technology to marketers for like 12 years. Eloqua, Lattice Engines, and Pathfactory are just some of the notable companies where you might recognize her work. Goes without saying, but a lot has changed in marketing over the last decade plus. Elle has seen the evolution of marketing automation and content marketing firsthand and experienced its effect on hiring, strategy, go-to-market plans, really everything. But perhaps the biggest lesson she's learned in advancing her own mastery and career in marketing? Find roles where you can own a lot of things early on and grow with a company. After 12 years of doing this herself, Elle has a lot of lessons to share. This is Ground Up. It's a podcast about growth, except without all the numbers. Here, we tell the stories of everything behind the numbers, the ideas, the habits, the discipline, and also the personal and professional growth of some of the smartest marketers and business owners that we know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Well, I mean, I was in technology before I was in marketing technology, but I've been in MarTech for four, eight, 10, 12 years. And then before that, I was at a company that did human capital management software, HR software, so still in tech. Before that, I mean, I got my my the start of my marketing career in services marketing for, for a professional services company, which is very, very different. But right. still, I mean, you learn a lot about go-to-market strategy and just, you know, I don't know. Sure, sometimes um, it's transposable, I would imagine, right? Yeah. Yeah, yep, yep. But yeah, so a long time. So marketing to marketers. Marketing mm. MarTech to marketers for, for yeah. 12 years. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you've seen, yeah, the, a lot has evolved in that oh, time. Yeah. What, what, yeah. Would you say, what would you say is, is some of the bigger evolutions or, or just growth that you've gone through yourself in, in that time frame? Like how marketing has changed, like everything from it's all about attribution. Not that it wasn't, right? But yeah. was, was, was that as big of a... A, a big of a play a, a decade plus ago, right? Oh, like, it was. It, I don't think it was a play at all. I mean, you know, how this whole thing started, I think, is really through the birth of the marketing automation sure, ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, back in 2006, you know, call it even 2005, most marketers still were using like a series of point solutions to try to like yeah. replicate what marketing automation did. Like you didn't have, most marketers didn't have their own database that they could manage and control. They didn't have tools to do segmentation. They maybe had like an email tool that they could blast emails out of. They maybe had a CRM that they could somehow, you know, or or some kind of homegrown database. But like it was all these different pieces. And so you were doing all these, just like everything was like a one-off, right? And marketing automation sort of started to bring it all together under one umbrella. And it turned B2B marketing into a tech first you know, discipline where I think technology had just, but they had just been like a series of tools that you might buy to get things done. Um, it became the opposite, I think, where technology was really the driver of how you thought about the strategy and what you did. And that I think gave birth, gave birth to what we now call demand generation. Like that before demand generation, people did lead gen because it was, <laughs> it was just like, you know, you ran a campaign, you got a bunch of leads. Like there wasn't this whole um, synchronistic process of we bring it in, we qualify it, we score. Stages, like, right, yeah, like right. we just didn't have any of that stuff. So, I mean, I got into MarTech because I worked for a company that bought a marketing automation platform in 2000, probably 2007. Um, and what so was I went the platform? through the, uh, we bought VTrends. 
uh, which then was, so that was the old silver pot platform. Um, and, uh, we actually were in a head to head deal with Eloqua. This was like before Marketo was like really a big deal. Like they were just getting started. There was also all these like crappy little maps back then, like all these just little tiny things that, that either fizzled out or got acquired or rolled into something else. But, and, um, we bought VTrends. Eloqua was very expensive at the time. It was very hard to use. They had this very like old school sales process that we just didn't appreciate. And so we uh, we bought VTrends and then we went through the process of, you know, defining funnel stages and, mm-hmm. and figuring out what the handoffs would be. And like that whole thing that you do when you first are like either getting started in a company or like, you know, just establishing that sort of sales and marketing process. And I did that and I was like, oh, this is how marketing is supposed to work. This makes way more sense, right? And so um, it was after that uh, I got, I got in, I, you know, I got called by a recruiter who was hiring someone at Eloqua. And when I went into interview, the whole thing was about why we didn't buy Eloqua. Tell us why you didn't buy. <laughs> oh, it was exactly it. And I actually had made a whole deck. I had built, we had built this business case for like why we were, why we were selecting VTrends, why we, because actually the CEO that I worked for at the time was like, why wouldn't you just go with the leading player in the market? We should just buy Eloqua. And I was like, no, I don't think we should. Um, and so, I mean, I walked them through, like, here's where you guys lost this deal. Um, and that's how I ended up working there. So, and that was it. I mean, after that, I just, you know, kind of, you, part of it is just your network starts to become saturated in this one place. So the CMO of Eloqua went to, on to become the CMO of Lattice Engine. So I went to work for him there. And then, you know, being part of that marketing tech ecosystem, I met the co-founders of Path Factory. That's how I ended up there. The rest is history. Right. I always feel it, it helps when you have context or you felt the pain going into a job and you, 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 you carry that context with you. I think it helps. Positioning the tool, like developing marketing campaigns when you yourself have gone through it, or like you said, you were coming in with context at Eloqua. Well, Um, it also, I also like it through that process of buying marketing automation and implementing it and and really like going all in on the adoption of how you're going to use this technology as part of your sort of marketing process. I became like very convinced that that was the way the world was going to work. Like there was no going back from that. You were like, why would you, it was just like, this is what's going to happen here. And so I was bullish on it and I've been lucky. I mean, working in MarTech is, you know, in some ways it's just sheer laziness on my part. I mean, it's just like, I, I know this stuff. Like I am a marketer. I've used all these tools. It's easy for me to empathize with my buyer and all that stuff. And, um, it's definitely harder. Like you just, you know, if you are trying to market and sell something that to a person that, that you are not, you have to try to really get to know that and it's hard to have empathy because you don't live that person's life every day. It's easier, you know, when you are that buyer. So right, right. It's convenient. So in a world of automation, like, you know, and, and attribution became a bigger play, life cycles, all these sorts of things. How did, because I've seen you say that hiring is sort of like a superpower for you and you've been a yeah. leader of, of plenty of marketing teams what did that change hiring at all like the the type of talent you were looking for oh yeah uh, how did that how did that change oh my god i mean i think like back in the day when i think back to you know to whatever 12 15 years ago you're always looking for somebody i mean in, in some way it's this 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 question totally depends on where you're working i mean when i joined path factory and they were so called lookbook hq there was no marketing team. So like the people I needed needed to be like kind of utility players. Like I needed them to be good at a couple Generalist, different right, things. Sure. Right. Cause I, but, but yes and no. I mean, I think back then 
you did hire like a marketing manager or a marketing generalist and their skills tended more toward the comm side. It was like somebody who's a good writer and yeah. somebody who, you know, you, you were, it was more of that stuff. And now I think when you're hiring for a role like that, and I'm actually helping a company hire someone like this, you're looking for someone who has more of the technologist profile. So like, but it's a challenge, right? Cause I think what's happened is the pendulum has swung so far in that direction that it's actually, it's easier now to hire these, like, I mean, first of all, you've got a whole generation of people who are digital natives who like tech have always, always had technology. Like, grown up filming videos they, on their phone. They've, exactly. <laughs> they've grown up, like just always having a, a computer in their house and where like my generation, that was not actually true. Um, but so I think it's easier now to find people who have that kind of left brain sensibility, who know a lot about technology, who aren't afraid to like get in there and learn how something works and what I think gets sacrificed often now, you're seeing a lot of marketers who don't have as as strong of the writing skills, the creativity, like all of that stuff. I was actually saying to a CEO this week, like it's really hard these days to find somebody good at that kind of junior to mid level range who is really well balanced, like who can like think with the left side of their brain, understand the process side, be analytical, know how the technology works, not be afraid of it, all of that stuff, and write a great email and think about a creative way to approach a problem. Like people are sort of left or right brained, I feel like. And that's made hiring it, at least in early stage startups and smaller companies, it's made it harder. Um, but you know, I think like the way that you think about talent is still the same. Like you're, you, you think about the things you're trying to get done and you try to find people with the profile to, to solve those problems and fill those roles. I just think the things that companies need to get done now are different, right? I mean, back in the day, like you might be high, you might look for someone who, you know, had experience running events or writing press releases or, and that tends to not be the first place you go today. Now it's like, I need someone who can operate this marketing automation platform, who can run ads, who can like put together reports. Yeah. Yeah. So I just think marketing as a discipline has changed. I think it's evolved and I think it's true for marketing leaders and it's true for, for everybody on the team. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, that's why I think journalism majors, like, People that came out of school in a comms field like that, especially ones like journalism, where unfortunately that that's where I came from um, originally, and the field is not dried up, but it's gotten a lot more challenging, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I feel like especially kids now that are coming out of school, the technology side is there, right? They, like you said, they grew up with it, but yep. they also have that writing ability. Um, some of the best, some of the best people I've worked with, some of the best hires I made came from fields like that. Yeah, and I they, actually they I went marketers. to school. Yeah, I went to school for English and philosophy. I actually started in the journalism program at Northeastern and quickly realized that wasn't a good fit for me. <laughs> um, but I, I studied English and philosophy, and it's funny, like you know, when I got started in marketing, I thought of myself much more as a marketing communications person, as a creative marketer, as a more traditional marketer, and it was through the process of having to buy and use technology that I think I became a like, I mean, I've been a demand gen marketer most of my career, right? I've held demand roles at three companies. So um, I never would have thought of myself that way. Like I definitely thought of myself as a right brain creative thinker. Um, and it was out of necessity that I had to sort of cultivate that other side of my brain. Um, but I, I also like have come to really, really love that. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, what do you like about demand gen? And I love that it, it requires both. Like you can't just be an ops minded analytical marketer and do great demand gen because great demand gen inherently is about how you connect with people, how you, um, educate them over long periods of time, all that stuff. And that's 
psychology and right. creative and it's all that stuff. So I, I love that it blends those two things. And I think the best demand gen people that I've met are, are a pretty good balance of both. So uh, you were mentioning Lookbook, which later became Fa- uh, Path Factory. You were the first marketer there? there. There was no marketing team. There was no marketing team. There was like a couple of contract people, and like it was like very typical early stage startup. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm dealing with some early stage startups right now, and they're all, they're all doing the same thing. It's like you have a guy. And- well, you've got a guy on the team who like did, has one foot in product and one foot in marketing, and you have right, an intern right. who you hired to do some like database <laughs> stuff, and now they're writing emails. And so, um, Path Factory was a lot like that. There was a lot of like contract workers and some former interns and stuff like that but there wasn't a team and there was never a marketing well there had been a marketing leader at one point but there was not a marketing leader when I joined so uh it was very very early days so coming in like what's your first like talk about those first yeah I mean 90 days the first year like what what, when you're coming into a team like that that there is no defined marketing function how do you determine priorities? Is it largely just discovery mode? Like, how do you set go? Like, just walk us through all that. Yeah. So, I mean, like any early stage startup I've ever walked into, the first thing they were always trying to do is generate demand. I mean, almost every company gets started with an outbound model, right? Like they're testing it and, and determining they have product market fit by pounding phones, setting up meetings, do, getting a couple of deals done. And now they need to just to, to switch it and turn on the tap so that they have some more qualified inbound demand so that buyers are a little more aware of them, a little more educated. So it's usually always that both. And I'm not just going to say demand gen. I mean, it's awareness and, and, you know, it's just kind of, kind of top of funnel stuff. Um, the way that I've always approached the hiring is I know what I'm really good at and what comes easily to me. And so I need to hire someone who's good at the stuff that I'm less good at. Um, so, I mean, my first hire is almost always, somebody with a focus on demand gen, but is much more ops minded, someone who's like, you know, (laughs) implemented, managed, you know, used marketing automation. Um, And, you know, it's funny, earlier in my career, I was that person, like I was the person who sat behind Eloqua and like built programs and, and, you know, campaigns in Eloqua. Um, I think my what I am better at today, I'm a good writer, I'm a good communicator, I'm good at thinking about content strategy, I'm really good at messaging and positioning. And so like, I can handle that. Most early stage companies too, like need a lot of work on messaging and positioning. And so that's always a good thing for me to use my skills on and then complement that with somebody who's much more sort of analytical or operational so that we can start building out some of that, you know, implementing technology, using technology, building process, um, that stuff. So I mean, my first key hire at Path Factory at Lookbook um, was exactly that. It was a demand gen um, I, I, I can't even remember what we called my guest demand gen manager, but he was definitely like marketing ops focused demand gen person. And again, like my background is I came from the marketing programs world. I knew a lot about that. I've built a million nurture campaigns. Like I know, you know, I think about the buyer's journey and about the content it's going to take and all of that stuff. So I, again, like where I'm weaker is setting up and using the software every day and do it right. So I hire somebody who's good at that. That's how I always think about it. And then content, like you can't, I mean, I can think about content and have great content ideas. I can't write all the content that we need to actually survive. And so you need somebody who's good at that and can kind of own that process as well. Those are the two places I always go first. So was content, was content a heavy uh, channel that you leaned into? I mean, spe- uh, specifically for a company like Path Factory, right? It talks that that is all about content consumption, right? In the buyer's journey. Uh, was that a big play at the beginning? Because like you said, a lot of companies start off outbound or they dump a lot of money into paid ads. 
Um, and eventually, right, they need something that's more sustainable or, or yep. uh, at least uh, that's the hope. So was content, uh, like building a content engine, was that a big priority oh, for yeah. you early on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there actually was a con- like a, a content marketer when I got there who was quite good, but he was part-time. Um, and it was, you know, it was always a focus. I mean, here's the difference, right? Like when you, and this I think is true when you work in marketing technology, you're, t- you're typically dealing with founders and leaders who believe in marketing, <laughs> right? Like they get it. They get the importance of content. They believe that marketing can be a revenue generating function. And so, I mean, Path Factory, even in its earliest days, was trying to do some of that stuff in kind of a one-off, you know, piecemeal basis. But um, I was hired to try to stitch it all together and, and figure out how to invest in it the right way and how to scale it and, and all that stuff. But I mean, you know, I think that's one of the things I'm most proud about at Path Factory. I mean, we turned that thing into such a prolific content engine. Um, there's great marketers there. And um, we, I think we really leaned into that requirement. Um, I mean, I think about the very earliest days of trying to run campaigns and programs there and the first nurture we ever built. And it was like, we're scraping stuff together. And now it's like, those guys just are, I mean, they're sitting on just a giant, you know, content asset, which, you know, was a lot of work from a lot of people to, to, to build that. You must've learned a lot too about just consumption, right? About throughout the buying process and how content helped and, and just like the consumption of content, right? Because of, you know, Path Factory was was or Lookbook and Path Factory was was who they are right and help help marketers and brands uh, focus more on the consumption and how it helps and assists during different levels of the buying process. So, what would you say? Like, how did how did just being there and, and change your approach to to content? I think I became a lot more thoughtful about like what content makes sense what content you need what content works and I actually like I've actually been doing some consulting and some advising of of for companies and some of them are actually Path Factory customers and it's been fun to sit on the other side and say like look at all these things that you can learn about how people are engaging with your content you should be using that to course correct I mean we learned some things you know just very easy you know little insights to pick up around uh, you know, we've created all these 12 minute videos and yet nobody ever watches more than <laughs> two minutes of them. So why make 12 minute videos, make two minute videos. That's a really easy thing to do. Or, you know, we had invested in some very long form content, you know, written content. And you could see that, um, you know, one of the things Path Factory can tell you is how long it should take someone to read a piece of content. And so, you, you know, you're like, oh, it should take someone 25 minutes to read this. And the average amount of time people spend with it is actually, you know, three minutes, like why create, like make it, chunk it out or do something, but no one's going to sit and read the whole thing. So it doesn't make any sense to invest in that kind of asset. Um, so, I mean, those kinds of things, like, you know, you, you just pick up all this, this insight and the dangerous thing, I think you have to be careful in like, learning something like that and then trying to universally apply it wherever you go for whatever you do because every every market's different every buyer's different but for path factory we learned a lot about how our buyers you know how how they engaged with us what they consumed when they got really engaged in in the process and uh, what we needed to 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 give them um and that informed how we thought about the the marketing that we did what's funny too is like there were there some things at odds with what you were learning because like SEO, for example, long form content wins out, except you're seeing that maybe people aren't reading all of that content, right? So were there, were there ever uh, contradictions like that that you had to navigate? Yeah, I mean, it, look, the thing that those, it, those contradictions exist, though, for a reason. I mean, like, yeah, you need long form, you know, content to drive SEO. 
but your goal isn't necessarily getting people to read it, right? I mean, it's not to say that it's <laughs> right. not. I mean, you still want right. people to read it, but you don't have the expectation. Whereas when I create a five-minute video, I'm hoping people, I put all my good stuff in there. I want them to watch the whole five minutes. And so then you learn that they don't actually watch the five minutes and you go, we need to put the good stuff in the first two minutes, right? Um, so, I mean, I think there's still, like, it's okay to have different um, you know, different parts of your marketing strategy that are aligned to different goals and outcomes and, and not have them necessarily always meet up. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, like, I think, I, I mean, one thing, and I, I, I believe this, like, I think we live in this, like, very form-hating world today. Um, I think people, nobody wants to fill out a form. Like, it's really <laughs> hard to convince people that they should, like, convert on something, right? Um, and so, I mean, you know, that's hard when you're trying to run programs that are for acquisition purposes and, um, you know, you're trying to convert people from unknown to known. And, um, you know, so you learn things like that and it flies in the face of like what you're trying to get done and you have to get creative about how you, how you do it. And you also like, that's what it makes you realize is like, you can't just phone it in. Like, and I think B2B marketing in general, I feel like it's turning the corner and it's getting better, but like, there's so much stuff out there that's just like, it's just not good. It's just not good. It's not like inspiring or exciting. And I do think that's, that's a lack of focus on, on the brand. I actually think that's the biggest thing is like when people have lack a good, like a solid point of view around their brand, um, a solid idea of how they want people to think about them, the rest of their marketing suffers. It's just kind of like, meh, you know, it's just like a bunch of stuff. Whereas like, if you're really smart about that, you really, really think about what is our unique brand point of view? How do we want people to remember us? What's the thing you want them to think when they think about your company? If you start to breathe that into everything you do, I just think it like amplifies and, and sure. you know, inspires everything. So I actually think that movement toward brand as like a big cornerstone of, demand and b2b is making b2b marketing better yeah it's the difference between catering to an algorithm and and you can do both like you can cater to people and their consumption and and also cater to an algorithm and i think that's hard and that's why people so many people miss the boat on it yeah but uh, joe turned just the other day i posted on linkedin that like uh, demand without brand was like strip mining or something. And I chimed in and said, yeah, it's like fracking. I mean, and that's what it is. Growth fracking, yeah. Because all you're trying to do is just like achieve this outcome. It's with no right. thought about the long, and the reality is like, especially in, in, in many B2B companies, you're not dealing with transactional purchases. Like whatever you're doing today to get somebody to take an action is not the thing that's going to get them to buy. Like it's going to take a lot more than that. Right. So, um, yeah, I like this movement in B2B toward more brand centric strategy that thinks about like, who are we as a company and what is like, what are we here to do? What do we want people to think and, and all that stuff? Cause I think that like, if you, if you, if you have that, as your true north and you th as you think about demand gen as you think about programs and planning and all that stuff like the quality of what you do is going to be so much and so much better inherently and so when you when you get uh, we, we went the path factory we're gonna move backwards for a second when you got to eloqua how, how big were they oh 
I think they were like, I you know every, I kind of forget. I mean, they were definitely maybe, later stage than, than no, 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 no. Oh, wait. Oh yeah. Way later stage. But I mean, that's not saying much. Um, you know, Pat Factory <laughs> was the earliest stage startup I'd ever been at. Um, I think Eloqua was probably still south of 20 million in revenue, like maybe in the like 15 million right. area. And we were probably like, I don't know, a hundred ish people, maybe So la- later stage, right? Yeah. Like they were getting yeah. there. They were becoming a growth stage company at that point. But I mean, it was still like, I mean, it was still early days, which is funny because the company had already been around for a long time trying to like get this thing going and trying to convince marketers that they should like move to this new way of looking at the world. (laughs) I also like this was back in the Eloqua nine days before Eloqua was actually a product that a normal human that wasn't like (laughs) a engineer could figure out how to use. Um, And it was also, I mean, I joined right around when Marketo was really starting to make a play for the mid market and the SMB. And that level of competition, I don't think Eloqua had really seen that level of competition before. And it really changed the game in terms of like how they went to market. That was when Joe Chernoff joined to run content marketing. I mean, it was when we, I think, became like a fully, fully formed like marketing organization. Um, But it was, it was, it was still early days. It was actually, it's amazing to me now when I think about like how far along they were when I joined and how much work there still was to do, Right. right? Well, yeah. what I was going to say was like fundamental differences in in, a, in marketing in in a early early stage company and like later stage. Eloqua was still early days at that time. But what what do you think were some of the key fundamental differences and just the overall approach to marketing? I mean, it's it's so different because I was at Eloqua so much earlier. And what I would say was the evolution of B2B marketing in general. So I think like B2B marketing has come such a long way since then. Like the discipline right, has right. changed. I mean, it's funny, like... So back in those early days of Eloqua, when I joined, which was before Joe joined, like I, we didn't have someone running content marketing, right? It was like right when content marketing was becoming like this big buzzword that people were using and it was like a thing. So, I mean, here's a company that has, you know, built all of this great process and, you know, machination under the hood to like think about the funnel and how leads get handed off and the process by which things get disqualified and pushed back and like all that, like they've been, they had thought all about that stuff. Um, definitely like sort of an ops first mentality, but yet like no, no great content strategy. Right. right. So, I mean, Eloqua was getting to content like kind of late in the game. Although I think it was, again, it was just it was just that moment in time when content was starting to become this really big deal. That was like, I mean, you know, uh, in the very early days, like HubSpot was actually in our building and like they were starting to make a big play. And obviously they were making a ton of noise about inbound marketing and which is a content first strategy Um, that helped, I think content marketing to become this really, you know, um, in this bring it into focus for people. Um, So, I mean, I just, it was just such a different, it was just such a different animal. And it's so crazy because you think about it, like, not that much time has gone by and yet things have changed so, so much. Right, right. Um, something, you're, you were in a unique position at Path Factory that one that I identify with uh, being working remote myself and that you were a marketing leader working remotely. Yeah. So I wanted to dig into that. What were some of the, what would you say was like some of the more obvious challenges and maybe some of the less obvious challenges just in, in, in being a marketing leader that works remote? Um, I think it's way harder at the beginning. It's like, it's hard to kind of, you have to figure out how to establish your like, you know, your cadence of communications and the way you're going to engage with people. Um, it was really hard at Path Factory in the early days because I was the only remote em- employee um, for 
I mean, I don't know, nine months, 10 months. I was the only person who was remote. I was also the only American who worked there. <laughs> um, so, and you know, you can say whatever you want, but there are definitely cultural differences. My CEO used to give me a hard time about it all the time. Cause I was just like, you know, I'm from Boston. Like I'm <laughs> about as opposite as a, a Canadian citizen as you can be. Um, although I, I have, I have definitely come to really, really appreciate working with Canadians and working in Canada, to be honest with you. I think um, it's just like a really, um, it's a really great culture. I think there's like such a like focus on family. Um, I've been able to hire great people there who are so earnest and hardworking and it's actually a bit different than America, which sometimes I think people don't quite realize. Um, but I think like, I don't know, as a remote employee, like in the early days, especially if you don't, if you're not spending a ton of time with your team, it's like hard to get to know them. So I think you do have to spend quite a bit more upfront time, like getting to know people and, and figuring out how they work. The key to success for me um, as a remote you know, leader and a remote manager was definitely how I structured my team. You know, it's really, really hard to not be there every day and have very junior people reporting directly to you. Um, people who require a lot of help and oversight and, you know, need kind of not constant supervision, but like a lot of feedback. And so you really kind of need to have those people who report directly to you be a little bit more autonomous. And I really thought about how I, you know, how I staffed my team is like I wanted to find people who were like really ready to step up and like take, you know, take that next step in their career and be more autonomous and be a little more senior and have a little bit more, you know, you know, um, ability to make decisions and feel empowered. And that's just kind of my management style in general. Um, but I do think it's hard to be a remote leader if you have people who need like a lot more, you know, help. Um, so I don't know. And I mean, like, you know, the less obvious things are just like silly things. It's like, you know, having an, a workspace that you like, um, making sure you like don't do the lazy thing and just like, slack questions to people all day long and when you know when something's going to require more than a two-word answer like let's hop on a video let's hop on zoom and and talk and look at each other while we talk um and just like i mean it's just the logistics i have two little kids so like the travel schedule like just figuring out you know when i was going to be there and how that was going to work and making everybody's lunches before <laughs> um so i mean but it's like it's so totally doable and i think some companies are great at it i was really lucky at path factory i worked with a woman who i'd worked with actually at eloqua and at lattice um who has been remote for like ever so she just like had a I mean, you know, she just knows how to do remote work and how to lead remote teams. And I think I definitely picked up a lot of tips from her. Um, and I think it also got a lot easier once we had more remote people, because as a organization, our discipline around how we communicated, like, so back in the early day, we used to do these Friday meetings, every all, all company meeting every Friday, kind of quick stand up type of thing. Oh my God, the first year or two, even two when I was there, it was so awful. Like, you, know, you couldn't hear anything. It wasn't on video or if it was like the videos pointing in the wrong place. Like there's all this background. It was just like, it was an, it was a nightmare. And actually this woman, her name's Heather Faye, um, who's this pro remote. I mean, she really drove the, the, uh, the professionalization of that operation down to like point the <laughs> camera at this person. They need, she, I think she like might've like taped an X on the floor for people to stand on so like you could always see them and they were supposed to look at you and you could hear it and like it took I mean you know in the early days of a company it's hard for them to build that muscle memory when they're not used to having people who aren't sitting in the office so it takes a while but 
I don't know. It's so I, I, for, for me, I find like, I go into the office and I would just be, it's so distracting. I'm like, how does anyone get any work done here? <laughs> like, cause especially when you're, if you're a marketing leader at an early stage company, you are doing a lot of work. Right. Like, you know, I'm doing some consulting for two companies right now. And like, I am writing the copy for their home, for their website. And I'm like writing emails and I like, I'm, you know, I'm doing all that work. It's hard to get stuff like that done when you're in an office and people are tapping you on the shoulder and all that stuff. So I really like being a remote worker right like likewise before databox i was actually at litmus and litmus was, is about i don't know what it is now but it was about 60 percent remote but they started that way so there was a commitment early on mm. from the founders and it was like you said there was like simple things so when you had a call and there was five people on the call that were remote and five were in the hq in in cambridge it was like if we're going to be remote be remote so everyone, even if they were in the Cambridge office, would be in their separate areas and have their laptops open. So you'd see each individual Every face. person, yeah. Instead of five people sitting at a conference table and having the one camera up on the yep. wall. Yep. So like you can kind of, as the remote person, you can kind of see yeah, everyone. Sure. And you miss facial expressions. You miss like the nuance of seeing somebody close up. Yep. Um, so they, there was a real commitment to doing those little things that would yeah. be more I mean, inclusive. even even like, um, you know, I would I got really mindful of the fact like if I was going to book a meeting with like two people on my team, they were in Toronto, I was at home, I would book them a meeting room. Like it would be on Zoom, but I would get them a room because I didn't want it. Like, especially if we needed to have a conversation that we didn't want everybody to hear, like I need to be mindful of the fact that they need to go someplace and still be looking at me. And so like just doing stuff like that, I mean, you know, it's, it's simple. I mean, so much can, you know, it's so funny. People always think like, Oh, being remote must be great. You can like get all this stuff done. And I'm like, nah, actually not. Like I often, you know, I like don't eat lunch. I like forget to like, yeah, you, you know, come, you just forget, you just kind of get into it, you know? So, um, but I also live a good 40 miles outside of Boston and the, to get into Boston every day would take me probably over three hours round trip. So I've always felt like it was a good trade off. Like would I rather potentially be missing breakfast and dinner with my kids or missing a couple of days out of the week twice a month? And for me, that's always the obvious answer. So, right. Right. Like I get to, I get to pick my, my son up from, from preschool and I, I'm, I'm always grateful that I would never be getting to do these things. I'd be missing these conversations with him on the ride home or how excited he is to see me, like I would be missing those things. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm, I'm constantly grateful for those for those moments um, that people wouldn't have, what, 15, 20 years? I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just crazy where, where things have gone and where things continue to go. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I've talked to, I've talked to several, you know, CEOs of companies uh, very in the past, you know, couple of weeks that like are deliberately completely 100% remote. It was a conscious decision. That's what they did. And a, b- a big part of what's driving it, I think, is a desire to hire the best talent. And they're right, like, yeah. we don't care where you are. Let's find a way to just like get the best people for the job. And so you're seeing a lot more of that today than I think ever before. So how did you handle like alignment? Alignment around the right numbers, like setting oh. goals, alignment oh, around the right activities, focus? Alignment follows goals. I mean, I, like literally, I just don't think, there's, I don't think there's much more to it than that. Like, in the absence of concrete goals, it's very hard to have alignment because there's a lot there, then there's becomes a lot of debate about what you should and shouldn't be doing. Whereas if you have very concrete goals, you're like, okay, the only way we're going to actually hit this goal is if we align to it and do the things that are necessary to get that thing done. So, I mean, for me, that's the, always the first and the easiest and the obvious sort of rallying cry is like, we're setting three goals and I don't care if they're not 
I mean, I was setting goals at Path Factory long before we had formal company-wide goal setting because right. I just like I needed to align people to projects that were going to drive us toward reaching those goals. Um, so, I mean, we've always, I've never worked in a place that didn't have a some kind of revenue centric goal, whether, you know, in the early days, sometimes it's just an MQL goal. It's just about driving the, the activity and the volume or whatever. And, you know, eventually you get to a place where you're setting an actual revenue goal or an opportunity goal or an SU, whatever it is, you know, whatever stage of your funnel that aligns to. Um, and that drives a lot. That drives a lot of thinking around demand planning, program planning, budgeting, like all those things kind of come out of like, how are we going to get to this number? But then like, I, I don't think it can all be that because then other things start to sacrifice. So right. I mean, you know, you have to also set goals around. I mean, when we were first starting to establish product marketing as a function, like we set some very specific goals around you know, product assets we wanted to de develop. Like we need this many of these types of things to enable the sales team and stuff like that. So um, I just think that like, especially when you've got different people working on different types of things, like you have everything from a graphic designer who's like kind of getting handed everything to a content marketer who's focused a little bit more on sort of, you know, top to mid funnel to product marketing who's a little further down the funnel. You need some structure to knit together how these people are supposed to work together. Right, right. and goals are the way to do it right um you know even if you uh i mean we set goals around around kind of not even brand like metrics but around brand um uh get, like formalizing and promoting our brand story and it was really helpful because you started to go like oh all right we should prioritize having you do these 12 podcasts, even though we'll get no demand out of them because it'll help us to go out there and tell our story and push our point of view and all this stuff. So, I mean, for me, I just found like goal setting and goal setting and then regular functional meetings, not necessarily like I, I, I to be honest with you, it was rare that we did like a whole marketing team meetings so just wasn't that much value in it. It was much more like, here's a functional meeting that's all focused on demand programs for the next, you know, week. And here's one that's focused on, you know, this product launch or release or whatever. So, I mean, we structured our meetings that way to kind of um, make them kind of goal centric, to be honest with you. And those regular check-ins combined with knowing where we're like, what we're rowing toward just made it easy for everybody to kind of line up and know what they needed to do. And I found that marketers tend to be sometimes not, not as good at the, the goals that are around things that aren't, they don't have to be like it's a traffic number or a sign up number or, or at least it could just be like you said, like a brand player launching a training series or yeah. um, the, the, we call them output goals. Um, like things that they, they don't have to tie to a specific metric, but it's still yep. a goal nonetheless, right? Um, it's so, a, and usually it's a building block of something else. Right, like, right. okay, if we don't get this done, then we can't do this thing. So you've got to think about it in that priority, in that order of like, okay, well, the first step to actually getting to the, the promised land is going to be these outputs, exactly what you said. I think it's also sometimes it's hard, you know, some people can feel really far away from a goal. They're like, well, how, what does that have to do with me? Right. Like you think yeah. about like a designer and they're like, well, how am I going to help you hit that goal? And I'm like, what it should help you to do is prioritize the queue of work that you have. If you know that this is a goal and you've got three things you're being asked to do and one of them's tied to this really important goal, that's the thing you should do first. So think about that in terms of how you structure your time and your resources and, and, you know, think about your priorities. How far out would you typically model? and forecast goals? Would it be like a quarterly 
quarterly. Exercise or you, oh, I'm a yeah, I'm a quarterly girl. <laughs> That's why, like, I mean, you know, I definitely think I would struggle in like a really big company that thinks in terms of like years because I've always, I mean, part of it is in early stage companies from quarter to quarter things change so so much, so changes, much yeah, that it's yeah. it makes no sense to build. I mean, the longest you're maybe thinking out is like six months, but with the exception of I will say like there are things that are always kind of the cornerstones of your plan or your program, like big events, for an example. And like, I might commit to a big event a whole year in advance um, and then be thinking about like, okay, what are we going to do around that event and be planning for that pretty far? Cause, and I think also like looking at product roadmap can be another way to think a little bit longer term and start to go like, Oh, okay. In six months, we're going to try to release this thing. And then you're starting to think about what the world looks like at that point. But I mean, I just think that, I also think like, you know, marketing is, is largely about tactical execution. I mean, what gets marketing done is getting things finished, getting projects yeah. built, getting content written, like all of those things. And so like, you have to set, you have to be thinking in smaller pieces. If everything is this big, giant, you know, lofty six month goal, like Everyone's how do you, paralyzed. Yeah. yeah, how do you make it like, how do you actually get people to approach their work today? Right. So I, don't know, I think about it like that. My last question for you, you've, you've been a manager, director, running the man gen, running marketing departments. So for those listening that want to advance their career or, or you know, looking to advance their career in marketing, um, what, which areas of, uh, of professional growth uh, would you say are most important for people to focus on that, that are looking for that upward mobility in a marketing department? I think like, to be honest with you, a key thing for me has been just like developing my business acumen, not even about marketing necessarily, but like understanding, uh, you know, how a go to market strategy takes shape, understanding the economics of the business, understanding what happens when you raise money, what it's going to take to raise money, what happens if you don't raise money, like these kinds of things has, have really helped me to become a much more well-rounded leader and executive. Like, I don't think I could have gotten to this place. And I, I credit Pat Factory a lot with that. I work for a CEO who I was very close with, who like, you know, gave me this chance to prove myself, but also taught me a lot about that stuff. Um, because, you know, the further up the food chain you move, the more you have to, um, you have to collaborate and coordinate with people well outside of marketing. And you have to be willing to weigh in on things that have, don't have that, don't have as much to do with marketing. So I think that's a big part of it is just really starting. You can't always assume that everything you need to know is about marketing just because you want to be a marketer, right? Like if you want to be a marketing leader, you got to learn about a lot of things. So I think that's one piece of it. I mean, I've been ruthless in how I've thought about my, my network and thought about, I mean, I, I, you know, I always, I, I probably say yes to way too much, but you just never know who like right. that great person you're going to meet is. And I also like, I've done some things in my career that were, you know, like when I joined Lookbook, people thought I had lost my mind. Like, I mean, <laughs> I went from a really well-funded startup that was like, you know, doing well, that had really good, you know, uh, ex, you know, awareness in the market. And, you know, everybody was like, oh, you're going to leave that job. You're going to this like super, super early stage company and take a pay cut and all this stuff. But I thought of it as like, I want to, I want to do more. I want to like own more of it. Yeah. And this is my chance to do that. And to do that, I have to go to a smaller company. And so that's okay with me. And, you know, it wasn't a small company forever. It, you know, it grew and, and scaled and I got to touch and own a lot. So 
Um, I think you have to be willing to be brave about the decisions you make and not always do the thing that's easy or safe or, or whatever. Um, and then I think you just need to, I mean, honestly, you just align yourself to the smart people and you figure out what they know. And, you know, I've been so lucky in my career to, um, you know, work with people like Joe Chernov, who's like this brilliant, brilliant communicator and content marketer and, and just marketer in general. Um, I worked for a guy who's now the head of uh, growth and demand marketing at Zenefits. His num- name's Doug Seacrest. He's one of the smartest, you know, demand gen marketing ops people I've ever, ever met. Um, and, you know, Brian Carden, who was my CMO at Eloquent at Lattice, who's just like a, just a good you know, traditional like marketer knows so much about brand and so much about business and all that stuff. And like, I was super lucky to work with those people and to learn from those people. And I tried to be a sponge and just soak it all up. Um, and then, like I said, I mean, the best thing you can do as a, a, a marketing uh, leader, as a manager of teams is to hire people who are smarter than you right. <laughs> people who like, it's, it's always know, said it's, it's cliche, but it's so true. Oh my God. It's like, I mean, I, I, I cause at the end of the day, you know, yeah, you're remembered for the contribution you made, but it's really about the contribution your team made. And so you have to have a great team. And so like, I, you know, when I see people who like are afraid to hire that superstar because they're going to like overshadow them, I'm like, oh, you've got it all wrong. That person's going to make you look so good. Um, so you have to do that. Even, you know, I would say to people who were, you know, who reported to me and had to hire even more junior marketers, like, let's go out and find that person who's just really, really awesome because we'll learn something from that person. Person, right so right oh yeah. this was a blast and you so got a fun. you got a you got a podcast launching semi soon right uh, yeah with any luck at all it'll <laughs> launch hopefully in december uh of, of 2019 yeah does it have a name yet uh, it's going to be called The Mindful Marketer. I'm really interested in marketing origin stories, sort of like where marketers came from, how they got to the place that they're at. Some of the things that we talked about today, but, right, right. you know, um, I, I just, I'm kind of like, not not everybody took a straight path there. People take all these weird routes to get there. And I think it informs the kind of marketer they become. So I'm really interested in that stuff. And I'm interested in like what they do outside of work. Like, you know, these people who are these big, great, you know, the, 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 the people you think of that are big big thought leaders in marketing. Like, I'm curious what those people do when they leave work. And like, I want to ask them about that. (laughs) I want to know about their hobbies and their families and stuff like that. Because I think other people are interested in that too. So it's going to be just kind of general interest, you know, marketing stuff. Yeah, for sure. That sounds exciting. The Mindful Marketer. So uh, I'm uh, definitely going to look out for it. But listeners, make sure you do too. Maybe sometime in December. So that's, that's close. So, L. Anyways, this was fantastic. Really enjoyed meeting you and 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 hearing all about your journey. This was super fascinating. I feel like I could go for another two hours, but we won't do that. So, uh, but thank we're you so much now. for coming. We're friends. This is, this is what happens. So we just became friends. <laughs> now we, we yeah. have a thing. Yeah. This was super fun. I really appreciate that. I really enjoyed this. This was awesome. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.